Well, welcome. I'd like to uh, I'd like to thank you for coming to this Dean's Dialogue. With uh, the title is "Living Lives of Consequence." Thank you for your patience. We've just had worship let let out, so we'll we'll be having people stream in as we begin. But we wanted to get going, and the time that I'd normally take introducing two men that have done more than anyone should have done in a lifetime, uh, we'll we'll turn that over to them for questions. I do want to say just a word. This is an opportunity for us to talk about the larger issues of common interest, living lives of consequence. And one might think that just because it's a divinity school and chapel event, that that would be a no-brainer, that we're all about living lives of consequence. And yet it still behooves us to take time to think about those larger issues um, when so often our lives are mired in the minutia. And this is an opportunity to do just that. Dean Greg Jones uh, started at Duke Divinity School as the youngest dean at Duke Divinity School and now is the longest serving dean at Duke Divinity School. He's led the Divinity Schools in visionary ways and continues to do so. Um, dean Sam Wells is at Duke Chapel and he has led the chapel in ways of reaching out to the community and reaching past the vision that many university chapels have where it engages both the university community and the Durham community. And so without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Dean Greg Jones and Dean Sam Wells as we're able to listen in on their conversation. And as you listen in, if questions arise in your mind, please jot those down and we'll have a brief time at the end of our dialogue to take questions and answers. Well, I'm gonna start off. Um, Greg, uh, every now and then on the on the athletics field, you, you, you come across uh, um, an athlete who clearly doesn't know their own strength. They, you know, they, they've been well coached, the coach has told them all the things to do, but they haven't, uh, they haven't in a sense, internalized all of that and, and gone out and, and done it. I, I want to ask you, um, at what point in your life did you, did you get a sense that things might be a bit different for you? From, for you, that you might go, not go a conventional professional track, you might not go a conventional academic track, you might not go a conventional uh, pastor, pastor track, that, that you were going to have to make up the script as you went along. What, was there a particular person who said to you, Greg, you know, you need to think about this, or an influential person, or was it uh, an experience? Tell us about that. You started by asking it in the past tense. I was thinking I'm still waiting to That's figure right. that out. <laughs> right. uh, I think it probably has something to do with the way I was raised by my parents, and particularly my father, whose own vocation and his own sense was always uh, shaped by a sense that you do what other people call you to do, that that's the best way in which you understand God's call and claim. And uh, in my life, that became partly a, my form of rebellion was to go to business school. Um, that uh, I was sensing perhaps a call to ministry and uh, thought that that was the family business and so probably ought to do something else. And so my version of Tarshish was to go to business school. Um, and then it was when I was uh, uh, 1982, Ronald Reagan was president, and I was offered a presidential management fellowship for people going into the social sector. And uh, they, any agency that was hiring was to recruit these Presidential Fellows, I think it was called. I don't think there was a social sector under Ronald Reagan. Well, this was the problem <laughs> that uh, what happened was that uh, uh, the agencies that were hiring were the Defense Department the, and the Departments of Army, Navy, and 
Marines and I thought they wanted a budget analyst and things like that. And I said, well, maybe I'll go for a seminary for a year. So I went to seminary. Uh, my father died the summer before I started seminary, which was itself a complicated process. But along the way, um, I just decided that, uh, you know, my vocation was going to be unpredictable. Uh, so the old saying that uh, often heard in seminaries that uh, if you want to make God laugh, tell God your plans um, was real. And at that point then, I just started listening to voices of guidance from people I trusted. Uh, and so it was often conversations with a variety of mentors who have said, you really need to do this or you need to do that, um, that have led that process. Uh, Susan's a, a huge influence in those conversations. Tom Langford at a key, at several key points uh, were. But I've just assumed that uh, my vocation as a, as a minister means that uh, it's not a career that I think about what I'm going to do, and I don't have agendas in those sorts of ways. It's really a matter of, uh, of discernment of where my gifts and limitations best match up with others' needs and claims. Now, there's lots of cliches in this field, like making a difference and thinking outside the box, um, but you get to hang out with a lot of very successful people in, in a number of different fields. You meet... Uh, Duke trustees, and you meet do, you know, major donors, and you, you meet major theologians, and, and, and all sorts of people who've, who've obviously made some sort of a mark on the world. Um, is there, can you make any generalizations about some of the people that have left the biggest impression on you? Do they, is it attention deficit disorder or something that, that leads people to be you know, very active, or, or is actually being very active not, not a characteristic that goes across? Uh, a lot of people who've, who've made a difference. Is, is there a, any, 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 any generalization that you could make about the people that have impressed you? Um, I think what impresses me most, and it would range everything from people in local villages that I've met in travels in Africa, who um, nobody would know their name to some of the most impressive Duke trustees and other uh, leaders that I've, that I've met. And I think what I would say is, there's, a, there's a, an imagination, a curiosity um, that leads them to ask not just simply what is, but what might be. Um, I find that these people tend to think more broadly and often uh, read widely um, and make connections that other people don't make and see things in new ways and cast light on uh, perspectives. Um, and if they don't have the opportunities in some you know, rural villages and local contexts to read widely, they're people who can tell you about the lots of different conversations they have. Um, they're kind of catalysts uh, that draw other people together. Um, so I'd say, the, and, and the other thing I'd say is that they tend to be people who have significant character that draw other people to them. And they tend to be great storytellers. The storytelling is likely, is linked to the, uh, to that curiosity that they have a way of telling a story about their own lives, about the world, about what they do, that other people go, oh, I want to learn more about that. Mm. Now, you've, you've talked a little bit about your travels in Africa and elsewhere. I, I think when, when, uh, when one sees a subject like living lives of consequence, uh, it almost conjures in my mind uh, a vision of the Carnegies and people of 100 years ago who 
you know, who became great entrepreneurs and, and, and set up foundations and these kinds of things. And that's, that's a kind of, that, 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 that's my mental picture of consequence and perhaps that shows my limitations. <clears throat> but you've, you've traveled very widely. You've met people in some conflict situations and some situations of poverty and, and disadvantage. Uh, what, 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 what does a life of consequence mean in relation to some of those, uh, those circumstances that might be different to what we might think of in an industrial model here? Well, I think about um, a pretty wide spectrum. And, and so I was thinking, as I was thinking about the title for this dialogue, I thought to myself, well, of consequence to whom? Um, and, you know, I thought, well, you know, in the divinity school sometimes where we spend a lot of time talking about a ministry that's often hidden, uh, where a life of consequence to the people you serve may often be spending six hours in an uh, emergency room with the parents of a child who's uh, maybe not going to live. Um, we may need to hear the stories of kind of global significance, the, the Carnegie's or the... James B. Dukes or, or others. But then I think, you know, if you go over to the business school where they think in those kind of large-scale enterprises, you want to say, let me tell you a story about some pastors or let me tell you a story about these people in villages. Um, so I think uh, George Eliot has a wonderful line in, uh, in one of her novels that, uh, that says, she says, that things are not so ill between thee, me and thee is half owing to those who lived faithful lives and rest in unvisited tombs. Um, I think about lives of consequence. There are, there are mentors in small towns, you know, the kind of people who are the backbone of the local church, who lived a huge life of consequence and may be only known by a small circle of people. Um, but it was their faithfulness and the way in which they cared for others, loved others, that was enormously important. Um, or I think about somebody who lived a life of consequence almost by accident. Uh, so a story Peter Story told me about South Africa. There was a young man uh, who came to Central Methodist Church in Johannesburg in uh, the winter of 1976 for discipleship training and a Bible study class. And he, he participated in the discipleship training. And, and in that, it was, a, it was a young black guy, a teenager, and he was just trying to figure out if his life had meaning in a culture that was telling him that it couldn't. And he caught a vision uh, in that discipleship training that his life mattered to God. And he became one of the leaders of a uh, uh, demonstration in Soweto that became the pivotal beginning, now marked as a national holiday in, uh, in South Africa in June of 1976 that triggered you know, huge conflict. Well, he didn't think he was setting out to live a life of consequence. He just was trying to sort out his life and went to a discipleship training and then saw an idea and retrospectively, we say, wow, you know, to that. Um, so it's sometimes quiet, but sometimes it's also very noble and large scale. Or maybe it's something in between, you know, I think about Millard Fuller uh, trying to end poverty housing in one county in Georgia. Now that itself is a pretty big idea and quite consequential in the context there. Uh, 25 years later, they actually have ended poverty housing in that county in Georgia. But along the way, they've also built a few houses through Habitat for Humanity around the world. Uh, and so I think if we begin not by saying, uh, what's the biggest thing we could do, or what's the most ambitious thing for myself we could do, but 
how can we see things and what would be of consequence to God's purposes? Uh, sometimes it'll be very small, sometimes it'll be very large, and what we need to do is be willing to risk thinking outside whatever is comfortable for ourselves to imagine what that might mean. So if you're tempted to think about changing the world, then maybe you need to think about what it means to sit with someone in an emergency room. But if you're tempted to think that it's always about sitting with someone in the emergency room, maybe you need to think about what it means to do something at a large scale or scope. Did you, I mean, you spend obviously a lot of time talking with people going out to be pastors in rural Arkansas. Um, and I guess because Duke Divinity School is a, is a famous institution, uh, you can get a buzz being around here for three years. And then you go to rural Arkansas, you find yourself in the middle of nowhere. No disrespect to anyone uh, who might be a friend of Bill Clinton or anyone like that. But, but you find yourself in the middle of nowhere. And then what would you be your word for that person who, who, who was charged up leaving the Divinity School feeling that they were going out to, if you like, live a life of consequence and finds themselves with what may seem very petty struggles in, in very obscure places? Well, I think uh, it's one of the reasons in addition to the beautiful writing that I think Rick Lisher's Open Secrets is just such an extraordinary book. Here he is, he's in the middle of Illinois, um, and you know, I think at least by his telling of the story, there's only one person who comes and visits the church in three years. So it's not exactly a, a situation ripe for church growth if you think about people just kind of flocking uh, to the church. And yet you read that story and over the course of three years, in some ways, not much changes. You know, the, it's a town of, it's a county seat town of faded grandeur that's, he's in the rural area in, related to, in relation to it. And he has this wonderful image of the summer of Mo and John. Uh, Mo and John being Mo and John Dean, it's the Watergate hearings, and seeing in the midst of, uh, I think it's the summer of 90, 1973, maybe 74, uh, watching these Watergate hearings, and here are all these glitzy, powerful, significant people, and he kept thinking, oh my goodness, you know, here I am in rural Illinois, and, you know, the church, uh, he called it the Church of the One-Armed Cross because the cross on top of the building was missing one of its arms. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just filled with people, you know, he said that after the book was published, he had all these people who wrote to him and said, I didn't know you knew my parish. Uh, because, you know, these people were people Anybody who's ever been a pastor knows, you know, the teenage couple that comes and wants to get married trying to hide the fact that she's six months pregnant and they don't want anybody else to know and it happens to be the, the daughter or son of the chair of the board or, you know, all these stories. But then he's talking about Summer Mo and John and then he talks about which is really more significant in that sense, um, what's going on in Washington or driving 45 minutes to make the sign of the cross over a comatose parishioner. Um, that much of ministry significance and consequence is in the quiet, hidden faithfulness. And when I do even development work uh, in terms of uh, raising money for student financial aid, I'll often find lay people who want to endow a scholarship in honor or memory of a pastor. When I ask them what, what it was about the pastor that they want to memorialize or honor, it's rarely that the person was the most stirring preacher you've ever seen. They don't typically comment on their exegetical prowess or, you know, uh, but it's usually a story about the faithfulness and the care and courage 
not just in being present passively, but in being an embodiment of the gospel lived in a relationship that had powerful significance in shaping a person's whole life, uh, maybe in one day. So would it be fair to, um, to say that one lives a life of consequence, partly in some of those circumstances, by not having too much regard for consequence? Yes. Um, and not having too much regard for what one's own role is in creating the consequence. Um, I think that there's a lot, there's a, there's a very important point to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's comment that we're called to be faithful, not successful. The problem is in the contemporary American church, we've turned that into almost a claim that we're called to be unsuccessful, that we're called to reject success. Um, and what I wouldn't want to say is that you don't, if you're not paying attention to consequence in the first instance, that somehow you, that consequence is irrelevant. Um, but it's saying that there is, a, there is a higher calling. And I think one of the things, for example, that distinguishes in, a, in the Christian tradition, uh, the calling is not to heroism, it's to saintliness. And that's actually a gift because, uh, as you talk about in improvisation, we're the fourth act of a five-act drama. God's responsible for the fifth act. That gives us a lot of freedom in the fourth act to experiment because it's ultimately not up to us. The great heroic kinds of stories of, of Greco-Roman culture are about it all being up to us. And, boy, that's a, that's a heavy burden. Uh, and I've seen some of the, you know, the tragedies in people's lives of people who thought that amassing a certain amount of wealth, amassing a certain uh, political power, whatever it might be, was the definition, that then they find it actually left them empty at the end. Um, but on the other hand, there's something about... Uh, what I tend to call gospel ambition that says it's a really good thing to see what might happen uh, well, in service to the gospel. <clears throat> I want to push you on the gospel ambition a little bit more because <clears throat> you've been at the Divinity School 10, 11 years now, is it? Uh, uh, something like that. 12th year, yeah. yeah, 12th year. And, and when you came, you could have said it's, um, it's not about being successful, it's just about plodding on, turning out ministers some people with doctorates and different degrees. Um, but you didn't do that. We're sitting in a remarkable lecture theater, which is one of quite a number that have appeared in the last 10 years. Uh, we have the, the, you know, the magnificent addition to the physical plant. The faculty, I think, is larger. There, is, there are things like the Institute for the Care of the End of Life just across the corridor here. Different programs, Center for Reconciliation, uh, all sorts of wonderful things happening around the Divinity School, which I think it's not unfair to suggest might not have happened had you not accepted the invitation to come here. So there's, there's been a bit of ambition in there. At some point, you must have said uh, to yourself or to Susan, well, um, we could just have a regular year next year and not do anything <laughs> special. Um, but at some point, you must have said, well, we have here a, a constellation of possibilities at the Divinity School, which few other institutions have, certainly in the theological world. And we, if you like, have a duty. I think, I'm thinking of the parable of the talents, really. We have a duty to, 
to see to see where those will go. There must have been a conversation like this in your mind. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? And the, uh, uh, because ambition for I guess a lot of people in this room has been something they just assumed was, uh, you know, was off the table for or in a, in a theological frame of reference. The conversation's usually Susan saying to me, "Let's have." an ordinary year next year. Right. And I, can, I can imagine. It's usually yeah. not my <laughs> comment initiating. Um, well, part of what triggered it in the, well, I went back to my uh, 30th, was it 30th? High school reunion uh, this summer and uh, had lunch, I had dinner with my closest friend from high school whom I hadn't seen in 20 years, we have one of those relationships where you send an email about twice a year that says, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we got together? <laughs> um, but we hadn't actually seen each other. And so he asked me what I was up to, and I, was, I told him I was getting ready to go to Africa, that we were working on some projects with Global Health and uh, the Fuqua School around health in Africa. And, uh, and he just started laughing and he shook his head. This is a guy who's a Jewish lawyer in Dallas. And he just started laughing, he shook his head, and he said, uh, he said, you've always been thinking about what's next, and you've never cared particularly about what was in it for you. You just wanted to build interesting things. He said, you're just now in a place where you're doing it in a bigger scale. And it really took me aback, because that's not my image of myself. And so I had to look at this guy who hasn't seen me in 20 years, but remembered that from high school, which I don't know where his image came from, but it just caught me up short. So then I began to rehearse back to what is it about what I've been doing at Duke Divinity School that others saw in me that I might actually be able to succeed as a dean or do at least not fail. Because there's a certain sense in which that responsibility or those opportunities I thought were partly born out of, you know, when you, when you take on a job, and some of you have heard, heard me say because I think it's part of why we do leadership education now, my entire orientation when I became Dean of Duke Divinity School was being handed the keys to the office. And it was a kind of sink or swim and I thought, I have no earthly idea what I'm doing. And the first year was largely a kind of, um, they're going to find me out, I've you know, missed something crucial and it's all going to you know, fall apart. And so I probably did more things the first two or three years out of a fear of failure more than any gospel ambition. Um, but there also is a constellation. It's not only in the Divinity School with an extraordinary faculty, but it's also, you know, I noticed um, that there was a medical school right nearby uh, and thought it would really be important to have conversations about, you know, things like care at the end of life. Um, and those kinds of curiosities that probably preceded my arrival. I did a day up when I was in Baltimore. I was invited to speak to the Catholic Physicians Guild of Philadelphia. I'd never, I didn't know there was such. And they asked me to come up, and I said, sure. And I got up there and had these extraordinary conversations where these physicians were talking about what it means to be Catholic and what it means to be a physician. And could I help them engage in that conversation? Well, that then said, well, what would happen if we did that in a conversation with the medical school? Um, the truth of the matter is I thought if we tried a bunch of new initiatives and, you know, Ron Heifetz and Adam Hamilton at our Convocation Pastor School said recently that uh, in terms of trying new ideas, if you bat 40%, you're probably about right. If you're batting higher than that, you're not being risky enough. When we started a, several new initiatives, I thought maybe one or two would get some legs and we'd develop them. And most of them really seemed to get legs. 
So I thought, well, maybe I haven't tried enough. Um, don't tell Susan I said that. Uh, but it was, a, it was an opportunity where Duke has a culture of interdisciplinarity. Duke Divinity School had an extraordinarily healthy uh, faculty with a lot of creativity and strength. And so it really has become a sense of responsibility. Um, because uh, I think the gospel is unbelievably interesting, um, daunting, uh, troubling, but exciting. And uh, so you think about, you know, when somebody says, shouldn't we be thinking about field ed placements in the prisons? You know, Matthew 25 jumps out, and you say, oh, yeah, well, there's that. But on the other hand, when somebody says, uh, wouldn't it be significant uh, if we were engaged in uh, conversations with people in political science or law, um, I think, well, that's true, too. Uh, the, the challenge is how you avoid just becoming all things to all people and keep it centered. And fortunately, there are a lot of uh, constraints that, uh, that keep shape to that. But it is genuinely the case for me that, um, you know, despite my Jewish lawyer friend's observation, I think my own preference, if I was to chart my own career, I'd still be teaching full-time because I really enjoy reading and writing and, uh, and teaching. But I seem to have a set of interests or gifts or desires to do things that coalesced with where Duke Divinity School was at that point in time. At least that's the way it became clear to me as I entered into that discernment process about whether to come here. Tell, tell me a little bit about the curriculum, because one of the diff things different for me coming to this country is that I, you know, I started to specialize uh, at the age of 16, because that's what people tended to do where I came from, whereas in this country people tend to specialize around about the age of 22. Um, and there are those that feel that the great liberal arts tradition uh, uh, of, of, a, of a classical education is, is kind of under threat at a place like Duke because everyone's pre-professional in one way or another. Do you, do you think that uh, it's significant to, if you like, to keep, keep the, the canvas as broad as possible for as long as possible? Is that significant or is it horses for courses? What, what's, what's the best way to shape characters and horses minds? Horses for courses. That's another English expression. <laughs> <laughs> You pay with horses and you get courses? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Well, <laughs> I think uh, I'm a firm believer. In fact, I'd actually describe a divinity school education as a Christian liberal arts education. Um, and that's what it is at its best. I'm actually one who um, would want to say that the liberal arts undergraduate is the most important the broader the liberal arts education, the better it is for what's called pre-professional. Um, and I even think medical schools are discovering that, that you know, to, uh, to learn and read the great classics of English literature is a really important formation for the kinds of dispositions that you hope a good doctor will have at the bedside. Um, and I'd say that even about doctoral education that the best doctoral education, I mean, there are going to be some people who are going to be just the deepest, uh, most technically expert scholars of one particular subject, maybe subspecialty. Uh, and maybe it's just because it's my own temperament, but I find the most interesting doctoral dissertations to be ones that uh, 
are drawing from a broader array of literature, scholarship, into creative ways. And I think that's born out of undergraduate education. Uh, it's nurtured in a breadth of professional education, and it hopefully will shape the imagination of doctoral education. I think, you know, some of the most important insights I've gotten about the practice of ministry comes from a guy who I don't know if he has a religious bone in his body named Atul Gawande, who is a, a surgeon. He writes these fascinating essays in the New Yorker magazine. He's collected, two of, he's collected his essays into two books, one called Complications, the other is called Better. Um, and they're fascinating essays. But in reading about the reflections of a surgeon, I've learned a huge amount about what's at stake in the practice of Christian ministry. Um, far more than if I just read deeper in the narrow subject of Christian ministry, which often gets rather dull uh, and too specific. Mm -hmm. Would there be any uh, advice you'd give to somebody who, um, I mean, Duke Divinity School has got many students who are in their 20s and you, know, you, you went went down an MBA route uh, in addition to theological studies, and that clearly has, has enhanced uh, your perspective on life. Are, are there things of that kind that, you, you, again, you could make generalizations about for, for people to say, don't just be this, you could be this? <laughs> oh. Intellectual curiosity manifested in conversations with unlikely people um, and that's and those same conversations can be had with books the most interesting people I know are people who read widely uh, and they're people my kids call them dad questions because I just will walk up to people and say what have you been reading you know and they they kind of roll their eyes like but that's where I get my best books that I know to read is when I find people in a wide variety of, of uh, fields, and I say, what's the most interesting book you've read? Um, and there are people who, some of the people I admire most are the people who always give me the books I know I'd better go read next in those ways. But it's also the unlikely conversations. Um, and so whether it's, and that's part of the glory of, of a job like you or I have, is we talk to people from all walks of life. Um, I talk to people who are, you know, going to vote for every imaginable con uh, candidate uh, in any given election in the U.S. And, you know, then you talk to people internationally who have their own takes on all sorts of those things. Um, but it's, David Ford writes about the community of the heart, those people you carry around in your imagination. And so, you know, right now, when I think about leading a life of consequence, I'm thinking a lot about a a uh, young man I met in Cote d'Ivoire uh, who's an extraordinary human being, has almost no access to books, but he talks to an amazing range of people. And he's got an intellectual curiosity. But I also think about some of the CEOs on the Duke Board of Trustees and the conversations I've had with them and the ways in which they blow my imagination. Um, I don't think it's so much degree programs. We have too many people these days who are preoccupied with getting degrees and the degrees become a credentialing that you think somehow makes you consequential. 
Um, I actually hate it. In, local churches sometimes will put the, the list of degrees even behind the lay people's names. You know, like here are the ushers and so-and-so MD. And I'm thinking, what difference does that make for them being an usher? Um, I don't think that the degrees are what really indicate whether somebody is well-educated or not. It's really whether they've... Uh, become a person who asks the sorts of questions, who has the sorts of virtues, uh, who's developed the kind of wisdom that will make uh, a significant contribution in whatever setting they are. It's the same thing I say about what classes students ought to take. Don't ever sign up for a class. You sign up for a faculty member who is going to shape your imagination in a significant way because they, they know the material, but a, a, a really interesting sounding class taught by a bad professor is going to be deadly. A course we that you think have, I don't know what that is. Those, do uh, that's elsewhere. That's elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> but a course, but a course that sounds like you think, why would I want to take that? Taught by a professor who's got that lively intellectual curiosity is going to be really significant and illuminating. And just finally, I'm going to ask uh, the audience to uh, do what audiences do towards the end of these sort of conversations, and, and ask some questions themselves. But uh, uh, ju just to reflect finally on what happens to somebody who's, shall we say, 45 or 54, who thinks that they possibly didn't make the most appropriate choices when they were 22, uh, but have been committed to them and are paying college uh, fees for their children and all the kind of things that lock you into, um, into saying, well, whatever I chose, I'm gonna st I've got to stick with it. W would you have a word for for what it might mean to, um, to discover that kind of ambition or that, that kind of vocation in midlife? There's a, there's a uh, book that was written by a guy named Bob Buford that talks about going from success to significance. Um, and he's actually talking about people who have been successful in midlife and not just that they think that they somehow missed something in their are frustrated, but they've actually sometimes been wildly successful and hit midlife, but still think that something's missing. Uh, and it's this yearning for significance. But I think it's, uh, it's a question of whether or not uh, there's been a good alignment of the full range of one's gifts and the full range of the world's needs. You know, Frederick Buechner's old line about vocation, that it's where your deepest gladness and the world's great hungers meet. Um, and I think that there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, and it's a calling on places. If, if Duke University actually could engage alumni on a broader level than just coming back for a reunion, remember what it was like when you were 21, um, or to just ask for contributions to the annual fund, which are always appreciated. Um, but there's a sense of a connection at a deeper level of growing, thinking, renewing, but also taking the, the wisdom that's been accumulated, whether you're a practicing scientist, a business leader. Uh, when, I was in, when I was in Uganda a couple of years ago, I had this conversation with the, with the Roman Catholic cardinal. Uh, and I said, what keeps you up at night? And he said, well, two things. He said, one is, is that uh, we need more leaders. And I thought, yeah, sure, I understand that. You know, that's kind of a standard thing people like us say. Uh, but then he said, the second thing is, if education is going to happen in our country, it's probably going to happen significantly because of the Roman Catholic Church. 
He said, and so I worry a lot about when I should take the resources I have and put them into the schools I already have and when I should start new schools. I thought, well, now that's something worth staying up at night over. Um, but then I thought to myself, I know lay people in the United States for whom that's their daily work, you know, as in running a company, for example. And I thought, those are the people who sometimes get stuck in thinking that their daily work is frustrating. And what the church tends to do and pastors tend to do is say, um, by the way, would you serve on the trustees of the church? Or would you, uh, you know, serve on three committees? And it doesn't actually tap into either their talent or their yearning. Whereas they might actually have wisdom where they could have a phone call with somebody like that if there was a way to match them up that could make a difference. I think they're, they're, whether it's Duke alumni or people in parishes that are yearning for ways to connect uh, their hungers with opportunities and figuring out matches for that, not just in a kind of one afternoon, one off, but in ways that begin to really shape patterns of life and imagination. Um, you know, we did a thing, Susan did it, I was just the pastor's spouse at the time, uh, but she had a, an idea in Baltimore, we had a bunch of latchkey kids uh, who, it was a blue collar neighborhood in Baltimore, and uh, they, the, the idea was to have the school bus drop the kids off at, at the church and get some of the older folks in the church to meet them for after school time of uh, cookies and punch and work with their homework and things. We thought this would be a way to just uh, help deal with latchkey kid problem. What we discovered was it was a renewal of vocation for the older folks. They got huge uh, benefit from that connection. And churches ought to be places that kind of intergenerational tie, but we've often lost that imagination. Whether you're 50 or 70 or 18, there is that yearning for that significance of connection. Thank you. Um, it's, um, oh, we've got, got microphones everywhere. <laughs> uh, who, who would like to, uh, who'd like to go first and ask, ask Greg a question? I can ask you too. You can ask me a question if you like. Yeah, that's, um, that's perfectly acceptable. It's a big opportunity to grill the deans. <laughs> so if you're supposed to be risky enough so that you fail 60% of the time, yeah. does that become a problem? Depends on who's, uh, who's defining the problem. Um, well, actually, before I got into this work, I wrote a book about forgiveness. So <laughs> um, uh, I don't think it's a problem if you really have a culture of experimentation that says you're going to try things and see what happens. Um, I think that, I mean, in baseball, you're in the Hall of Fame if you succeed 40% of the time. Um, I think that uh, a culture of permission is far more life-giving uh, to an organization or a person than a culture that presumes that the beginning answer is no. Um, I actually think that if you plan well and if you can develop conversations, I mean, the things that we did, we didn't do without talking to enough people to have some sense as to why they might be reasonable to undertake. Uh, but um, 
I think the 40% principle is that we tend to be far more cautious than, uh, than we ought to be as, as human beings. That we either tend to be self-absorbed and ambitious for ourselves where we step on other people to do things. And then when we see how that causes damage to families and destruction and all sorts of things, we say, well, the opposite of that is mediocrity and not doing much. Uh, whereas there actually is another imagination. Uh, you know, the, the, the way in which I mentioned Millard Fuller, if we were sitting here in 1950 and I used the words Habitat for Humanity or I said the word hospice, no one would know what I mentioned. I wouldn't even know to use the words, but if I was in kind of time travel or whatever that movie was where you went back, back to the future, was that it? Um, and you said those words. And so we suffer far more from a poverty of imagination than we do from being too adventuresome. But the adventure is not in making it up as you go along. It really is, uh, to plug Sam's book again, improvisation, which means you've got to have a long sense of history and tradition because it's the better your rehearsals that actually gives you the freedom to be as creative and adventuresome, whether it's in theater or in music, in improvisation. Uh, and the problem is most of us aren't risky, aren't undertaking more risks because we actually haven't cultivated the habits that give you that sort of freedom. Uh, and so the reason, I actually don't think you'll fail 60% of the time if the habits are really there. I mean, the reason you watch improvisation troops are they can be really adventuresome because they've got enough habits that they can actually succeed in pretty outrageous stuff. I mean, it's really outrageous to think that you'd ask a whole audience to come up with the topic that you're now going to do improvisation about, uh, except that they've been schooled in all sorts of ways that make it more plausible. Uh, so the better our habits uh, of daily life, the more likely we are to be able to do genuinely creative and audacious uh, things that otherwise seem risky, but actually have some pretty coherent rationale to it. Are you sure? I'm stunned. I've never known this group to be so quiet. Oh. <laughs> This is, just, this is just a follow-up, and it's not really relevant to ministry at all. But I just uh, I want to say I agree very much with your idea that you should start things with the expectation that a certain number of them would f will fail. And I just wish you could speak to the peer review system at NIH to, get them <laughs> to come up with the same idea, because in science it's very true. Um, the really creative experiments, most of them fail. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I, I'd say that true. I'd say it's also true. NIH foundations generally granting institutions uh, don't recognize because everybody thinks that something's supposed to have an outcome that uh, it's often going to have a long period of uh, either failure some of the most important scientific uh, scientific discoveries are rooted in long periods of failed experiments but it's also true that sometimes you go through periods of trying things and it's in discovering that they didn't work, that you actually learn the most important insights that enable you to then develop something. And the typical foundation is on a four-year grant. Well, if it takes you the first year or two to get it geared up, 
you then have a year where you're supposed to show success and it, it means you're not going to try anything that's going to be really risky or really adventuresome uh, because it's not a failure to have undertaken the experiment in the first place. You learn things, important things along the way, um, but we live in a culture that seems to be fearful about that uh, in all sorts of contexts. And so, you know, I, I remember as an undergraduate, there were classes I didn't take because I was fearful of failing. Not literally failing the course, but I was just unsure. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. You ought, to, you ought to go and take the courses where you think, I know nothing about this subject. I, I taught a course, a university-wide uh, course a number of years ago, uh, and it was all graduate students and PhD students and divinity students, and I had one undergraduate biology major, and she said it was the first humanities course she'd taken, but she figured it was her second semester of her senior year. She was the best student in the class. I loved it, partly because she kept coming in and going, what the heck are you all talking about? And it was just great because it was that, in, in, that level of willingness to risk. And she actually ended up getting an A in the course even though she thought she knew nothing about subject matter and didn't have any of the background. But precisely the kind of willingness to ask the strange question. I was in a meeting about global health, not at Duke, a, a Methodist church meeting. And uh, one of the other people on the planning committee said, we need to be sure to have somebody like a car mechanic there. And I said, what? He said, you need somebody in a meeting like this who, at, who, know, who has no expertise, who's likely to ask the impertinent question uh, and say, well, why would you do something like that? That seems stupid. Because all the experts are going to be so narrowly constrained by what they think are the conventional assumptions, you'll actually never get to any new discovery. But it's when somebody comes in and just says, why would you do that? That you might actually, you know, it's kind of a great gift nowadays in churches, when you get uh, somebody who comes out who's never been to a church before and they hear the, the story, you know, they hear the parable and they come out and they go, you know, the workers in the vineyard, that's really stupid, that's terrible. You know, you think, ah, there's an, there's an opportunity for a conversation here. Because <laughs> everybody else goes, yep, yep, know the story of parables in the vineyard. You know, prodigal son, yep, yep, he comes back. It's a good story. <laughs> you know, got to have that. And that's part of what reading widely does is when you read somebody who has absolutely none of the same convictions or assumptions you do, and it raises them. I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, since I mentioned Gawande, uh, I was reading this group with our leadership education group, the book Better, um, first chapter of which is about washing hands in hospitals, and it's why that's really critically important to the well-being of uh, patients in hospitals, because infections set in because of the failures of nurses and doctors to wash their hands more often. So he has this whole thing about systems engineers and how engineers spend all their time trying to get soaps by the bedside and everything. And so we're, we're reading this. And I had already told people that I thought that this book had a lot of analogies to ministry. And I said, uh, so I was saying, you know, look at all these interesting essays. And you could make the analogy to dealing with polio in India. And then somebody said, well, what's the analogy to washing hands in hospitals uh, and how you make that part of the DNA? Somebody else said prayer. I went, Oh, well, yeah, that, there's that. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's reformed my daily habits just to think about prayer as the theological analogy to what washing hands is to a doctor or nurse. And then you begin to think about your life in a whole different light. And 
also think about it in relation to failure. By the way, churches could learn a lot, any leaders could learn a lot from the practices in medicine of morbidity and uh, uh, M&M, uh, mortality uh, conferences where doctors know something really important is at stake and they know they're going to have failure. And so you have to have ways to evaluate what caused it, what do you learn from it, how do you make progress uh, in it for the future. Uh, when you know something important is at stake, then you actually take that seriously. I wish university leaders, uh, pastors, deans had that kind of engagement because then you'd be willing to recognize you're going to take risks, you're also going to fail. The question is not whether you fail, the question is what you learn from the failure, what you learn from it uh, that enables you to do something more different in the future. I think we're... I, I, think we're, yeah, I think we're at the end of our time. Thank you so much for coming, and I have two requests of you. If you would put on your calendars November 25th, which is the date of our next Dean's Dialogue with Dean Blair Shepard and Dean Wells at Fuqua School of Business. That's November 25th. Same time, pizza at 12, 12.15 will actually start. Um, and my second request is, please, I'll consider it a personal favor if you make the pizza disappear by any means necessary on your way out of the room. Let us express our thanks to Dean Wells and Dean Greg Jones.